Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Earth News Interviews. I'm joined by my co-host, Dean. Hi, Sophia. And Dr. Dan Gregory. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for being here, Dan. No worries. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how was everyone's weekend? Well, mine was pretty crazy. Just a few minutes ago, I got my new microphone in. Hopefully it makes a difference. I guess I'll find out in post-editing just how much better it is, but it couldn't possibly be any worse than what I've been using for the past several episodes. (laughs) Yeah, ours was pretty good. We started um, teaching my daughters how to ride bikes. So my four-year-old got her first chance on a pedal bike and the two-year-old got to start on a push bike. So we adjusted the seats and kind of got that going. Oh, that's fun. Oh, nice. What's the procession? I'm not familiar. Well, first it's, I guess not a push bike, it's a balance bike. So the younger ones, so it gives them a chance to learn a little bit how to steer it. So there's no pedals, so you don't have to work that out. So Cassandra's been on that for a little while and then we moved out to a pedal bike with training training wheels. So she's kind of figuring it out how to pedal. So at first we didn't have the height right. So she was way too high. So she couldn't really get them around, but got everything adjusted and working today. So or yesterday. Is the push bike when you just, when there's no pedals and you just kind of roll along or kind of run along on the ground? For your yeah, that's, the, that's right. Okay. Oh, man. I remember when I first learned how to ride the bike, like on two wheels, I learned it with my grandma's help in her dirt driveway with nothing but potholes everywhere. And it was the most difficult learning curve I think I've ever had to go through my entire life. But when I got back to my house in the suburb and I started using it on the pavement, I'm like, this is the easiest thing I've ever done. Look how easy and smooth and it doesn't even hurt you when you ride. Yeah, I never had riding on pavements until I was like in my late teens. Everything was on dirt roads prior to that. So... Like you say, a bit of a steep learning curve. <laughs> I picked a lot of gravel out of myself. It's probably a good thing to start with that rather than the pavement, because then you get too comfortable. Yeah. We'll get comfortable on dirt roads. <laughs> true. There's no comfort. <laughs> That's true. I'm the opposite. I started with pavement, and so, so it was no problem for me. But my sister-in-law, actually, she was teaching a nine-year-old how to bike for the first time last weekend. And she said she left with a bunch of like bruises and just bike marks. I mean, if you're trying to hold on to this heavy kid and the bike, there's probably no way that you're going to get out of there injury free. So yeah, she had a fun time doing that. Probably good that you're starting to to teach the kids early. Yeah, we'll see when training wheels come off. That's the the really tricky bit. (laughs) Yeah. So Dan, we've both had some experience with you um, in the academic setting. Uh, I was in your ore deposits class. Sophia, how do you know him? So Dan was a stand-in field professor. I remember for a course uh, on igneous petrology, or I guess advanced igneous and metamorphic petrology last year. So Dan led a field course. Okay. Uh, So what what, uh, got you interested in earth science? Well, so I started... I had a pretty long and convoluted path to it. Um, I started wanting to be an engineer and build bridges. That's what I thought I was going to be when I was a teenager. And I took my first year of like engineering and decided that that wasn't for me. But I enjoyed my chemistry class a lot. So I enrolled in chemistry and actually got a, a full chemistry degree. 
at UBC. And that summer, I was, I was, that was in a time when the exploration industry was booming. Um, so basically companies were looking for any people they could get. So they would actually bring like beer to campus and offer free beer for people to go to information <laughs> sessions. So I went to one of those and I think I had to turn in a CV to get, you know, the free beer and then just kind of left happy that I had a couple of free beers, but I was offered a field job that summer. And I thought it would be like a lot a fun, like last raw before I start my real work as a, as a chemist, whichever career path I decided to go in for that. Um, but I really liked it when I was up in the field and I was actually a field hand for a, a master's student for about half of the summer that was, it included like an overlap with his supervising professor. Uh, and that's really sort of got what got me hooked. So I went and re-enrolled in geology the next uh, fall, not actually realizing that I could have taken a master's degree with my chemistry degree. But so I have two undergraduate degrees, science degrees. Um, and then after that, um, I kept working every summer with that same company. And I worked full time for them for two and a half years, I think something like that, after I graduated with my undergraduate degree. And then I ended up doing my PhD after I actually sort of followed my wife to do her PhD. She, she wanted to do a PhD. And then it was in Tasmania, which is uh, a really well-known school for ore deposits, but there's not a whole lot else to do in Tasmania. So I figured, well, I may as well do, do a PhD at the same time. Um, and then in the end, it turned out that I liked academia a bit more and she liked industry more. So the plan is for her to go to industry. And I now uh, did a postdoc uh, at the NASA Astrobiological Institute at the University of California, Riverside, and then moved on to... Um, to my position here at the University of Toronto. Cool. I mean, so so just to kind of go back to what Dean said, we noticed that during your classes, you really value hands-on learning. So why is hands-on learning so important to you and why do you think it's important to have an undergraduate level? Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. I guess I think it's the best way to learn is to be able to actually think about the material rather than, and having some of that interaction. So you end up reinforcing concepts and it also gives the flexibility to answer questions directly by students rather than like going through a lecture where in the first 10 minutes you might miss something and then the whole lecture is written off or you just forget to, to revisit those facts and they might be more important. So if it's all kind of happening in like a, workshop type setting. I think it is more conducive for back and forth and stuff like that. It's a little less formal. And especially with the geological sciences, I think there's a lot of exceptions to rules. There's a lot of gray areas. And in sort of a hands-on format, it's a lot easier to point those out in a way that is sensical at the time. So if we're giving just like a traditional stand at the front of the room lecture, I can list off maybe 25 exceptions to the general thing that we're trying to, to put forth, but those aren't really that meaningful if you don't have the example right there. So one of the things I think that came out with of one of the porphyry lectures I did as a flipped classroom was there's different seeing different alteration and then taking that alteration and making sense of it in a chemical model sort of way. So what I had when I took the equivalent course when I was an undergraduate was 
basically you would memorize this quite a kind of bullseye model for porphyry systems but we didn't really get much of the understanding there so when you go actually go to a field site you don't know why that bullseye pattern is there and in most cases it's not so you need to know how that bullseye pattern comes about as a model and when we're in kind of a hands-on thing we can start pointing out exceptions to the rule and the exceptions are really what we see in the field right and i think it's more fun too so (laughs) like it's just it's more fun to look at rocks and talk about rocks than to stand in the room and and scream at people yeah you mentioned the flipped classroom thing i i I think i really enjoyed that can you explain like the concept of the the flipped classroom and how it's yeah so this is something that was really developed um as far as I understand it, in the physics department. So it's basically you film the lecture or you assign readings and the students watch the lecture or do the readings ahead of time. And you're always supposed to do the readings before a lecture, but I guess this is making it a little bit more important. And then you do it, you would do like uh, guided problem sets once you actually get into the classroom. So this was driven, I forget his name now, but there's a Nobel laureate in physics that really pushed this at UBC. So I went with a workshop when I was still an undergrad there, and he actually gave a talk at UC Riverside when I was there as well. And then this made me pretty passionate to, to try it in earth sciences, even though we're not really so problem set based. And I think it was, especially the poor free lecture, I think it worked really well because it allowed us to discuss alteration systems and put that in the context of the of the deposit model, which I think it really helped um, explain it a lot more. Yeah, I, I agree. The drawback is you, you, you don't get as much detail sometimes. So, like in a normal lecture, you can you can spit a lot more facts. So it's good to have a bit of a balance in it. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. Before we get into this paper on, on gold that we're going to discuss, uh, I just thought it'd be a, kind of important to give some background on where gold comes from and its rarity, not only on Earth, but in the universe. If you look on a periodic table, you'll notice the elements get heavier as you read it from left to right and also from top to bottom. Most of the first 26 elements, number 26 being iron, were largely created in the interiors of stars, and they're have been lots of stars in the history of the universe, so they're relatively more common. The explosive deaths of those stars created the energy conditions required to create even more elements, up to number 37, rubidium. But everything heavier than rubidium, like silver, platinum, and number 79, gold, are formed from much rarer processes. Taking gold as an example, most of the gold that we see today was probably formed from the collisions of neutron stars. And this is why on Earth and throughout the universe, iron atoms are about 10 million times more common than gold atoms. So now the only way we can meaningfully extract elements as rare as gold is to find locations on Earth where very special chemistry has occurred, sometimes over really long periods of time. Chemistry, which resulted in gold atoms getting picked up from enormous amounts of rock or magma, carried some distance and deposited again in one smaller spot. So to look for uncommon resources like gold is to look for these instances of special chemistry. And it might be seeking geographic locations, such as places where continents collided, tectonic plates subducted, or where magma chambers have ascended, 
Or it might mean looking in the earth for places in time, like when the atmosphere and oceans still lacked oxygen, or when massive volcanoes emerged to spew inordinate amounts of sulfur into the air. So while these discussions can sometimes get lost in some more arcane language, especially around chemistry for me personally, I think it's important to first appreciate the challenges that exist and the creative thinking required to overcome them. So with, with that, uh, Sophia, take it away. Wow, that was amazing. I'm really excited to talk about gold now. Um, that was a great trailer for it. Stardust. <laughs> Violent stardust. So, so the paper that we'll be drawing from today comes from Science Daily, and it's about a 2019 finding from JFZ Potsdam in Germany, where a group of scientists discovered a really important link between the concentration of arsenic and the growth of gold in a specific kind of gold deposit called a carlin-type deposit. So Dan, could you kind of brief us on what a carlin deposit type is? Yeah, a carlin deposit is um, a arsenic-rich, low-temperature gold deposit. So they... The type locality is Carlin, Nevada. So it's a, and it, it occurs in a number of different um, kind of rough lines that go across the state of Nevada. There's uh, three main trends that go you know roughly north a bit west, and there's a series of of deposits that are lined up along these trends. There are other kind of hypothetical Carlin deposits are ones that are a little bit different. Some in China, the Golden Triangle in China. It's funny, there's a lot of different places that have Golden Triangles. Um, <laughs> not necessarily just Carlin-style deposits, but you, you, you hear triangle tossed around gold an awful lot. Um, but there's also something that's Carlin-like in the Yukon. But it's one of these things where Carlin is unique in the amount of gold it has. So it it's one of these things where it's maybe not the best thing to try and be a type deposit because it's like an anomaly. Uh, whereas when we define deposits, we should be a little bit more broader, I think. That's maybe more of a bit of philosophical thought. But largely there, the key things to them is um, they're relatively neutral pH or fluids. So a little bit acidic. They're low temperature. They are associated with arsenic-rich pyrite. That's and they don't have really extensive alteration halos. Like they're there, but they're not nearly as obvious as say with the porphyry deposit we were just describing before where the alteration is pretty distinct um, as you go to different parts of the deposit. Carlin, it's a lot more subtle, or tends to be. So then Carlin deposits are, or Carlin-like deposits are really important economically because they make up 5% of the global gold deposits that are being mined today. And just to put that in perspective, 2,500 tons of gold are mined per year. So 5% makes up 125 tons of that. And this paper, like Dan mentioned, specifically focuses on the Carlin deposits in Nevada, which are massive and make up 75% of that global 5%. And the reason for this abundance of high-grade gold ore in Nevada stems from the fact that the pyrite, as Dan said, which is crucial to the formation of deep deposits, is really high in arsenic. So before we get into the arsenic correlation, what is pyrite and why is it chemically associated with gold deposits? Yeah, so pyrite, also known as fool's gold, is uh, FES2. So there's one iron atom for every two sulfur ions. Um, and it's probably the most common sulfide in the Earth's crust. Um, so it's the sort of thing that most people will have seen at some point. And if you haven't seen it, you've probably seen 
kind of the rusty color that you see weathering in rock sometimes is probably some amount of pyrite that's that's weathering out. When and if you haven't seen it, you've probably smelt it because if you've been digging at the beach, at least uh, if if you're next to the seashore and you smell like that smell of rotten eggs, that's probably uh, pyrite forming. It'll be in usually pretty dark, muddy sediments. So it's all around us. Mm -hmm. And so why is it chemically associated with gold? Um, so gold, one of the ways gold is carried in solution. So the, to get a gold deposit, you need a source, you need a fluid to carry it, and then you need a depositional mechanism. So there's two main ways that you can carry gold from the source to the depositional site. And one is in a fluid as a chloride complex, or one is in what we call bisulfide complex. So that's the sulfide. So when you form pyrite, you are taking the sulfur out of solution and making it into that FES2. And it's that sulfur is what's carrying the gold in the lower temperature type deposits. Um, so if you take away that sulfur and put it into pyrite, there's nothing to carry the gold. So the gold comes out too. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're saying that there may be instances in history where people collecting fool's gold weren't so foolish. Yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> well said. In Nevada right now, that's that's what they're mining is fool's gold. <laughs> yeah, so there's and there's a lot of other um, settings, but the the trick is is you know if we go back 200 years or something like that, you had to be an alchemist to get right. gold out of the pyrites. So you may as well. <laughs> so. Like Dan said, one of the ways that gold deposits form is from the reaction of gold and uh, hydrogen sulfide rich fluids that interact with these depositional sites like the wall rock in those sites. And uh, this process is called sulfidation. But the second process of gold deposition that the JFZ researchers looked into was chemisorption. So Dan, could you explain what the difference is between those two processes? Yeah, so it's sort of as I, as I described before, the sulfidation, what that does is it removes the sulfur from the solution so there's nothing left to carry the gold. And that results in gold precipitating as, as native metal. Um, so, and these will form, these can be, these can, can form gold-rich pyrites as well, where you get the gold as little nano-inclusions. But the other one, which is chemisorption, is when you have a, say, a growing pyrite and the charge on the surface of that growing pyrite is strong enough to attract um, the gold to it. It'll sort of adsorb. So that's adsorb with a D, not a B. So that means it, it sticks to the surface of the pyrite. And then you continue to grow that pyrite and it grows around it. So this is what um, we call structurally bound or lattice bound gold. So it ends up forming an intricate part of the pyrite rather than being a particle of gold on its own within the pyrite or elsewhere. Right. And so what this paper is trying to say and what the researchers found is that the gold concentration in these deposits is directly correlated to the concentration of arsenic. The conclusion was that gold concentration increased with the amount of arsenic because, and I quote, this leads to high partition coefficients for gold between fluid and pyrite, which produces pyrite that can more effectively absorb gold H2S complexes or hydrogen sulfide complexes from the fluid onto the pyrite surface. So can you break this down for us? Yeah, so what their contention is that, that basically by adding arsenic into the pyrite lattice, that affects the either the shape or the charge on the surface of the growing pyrite and makes it more 
able to adsorb gold. So as we kind of add more arsenic, it kind of makes the surface of the growing pyrite stickier with respect to gold. So it's going to stick the gold that's kind of bouncing around in solution is going to stick to the pyrite. And then you can grow more iron, sulfur, and arsenic on top of it. And then the, the, that sort of process will, will repeat. So if I can think of an a, analogy, maybe it's like if you were in one of those booths with the money spinning around and trying to grab all the, the bills, um, if you have arsenic rich pyrite, it's sort of like having uh, sticky gloves versus not having sticky gloves. You can grab more of it that way. That's a great analogy. I think that just painted a really good picture in my head. And so with with arsenic being a trace element as well, so does that make this deposit that much more special or, or uncommon? So it's not that much of a trace element in pyrite. Um, it's commonly up around 0.1 to over 1%. Um, so that's, it's not like the dominant mineral because that would be arsenopyrite or something like that, but it can be quite high. So in that paper, I think the number they, they throw at the top end is about 7%. But even in just like everyday sedimentary pyrite, uh, which is one of the things I've researched, it's not uncommon to have 1% arsenic and pyrite. Mm. And that's in like completely sort of background non-hydrothermal settings. Uh, so there's actually a, a lot of arsenic around us um, in various settings. So then with this paper coming out, is the additional factor of us knowing that the concentration is is increasing for the amount of arsenic that's that's in the deposit, is there a certain characteristics that we can detect on the surface that tells us, okay, there's a lot of arsenic here uh, in the sediment, so there's a potential for gold? Like, is this going to change the way that we look for these economic deposits? Um, I don't. I don't think so. The association with arsenic has been known for quite some time, so that's not really new. The the really new thing in this paper is that they did experimental work to to actually go from we know that this is the concentration in solution and we can check it the amount in pyrite in. So this will allow us to better understand our deposits by going and look and getting an idea of what the gold and arsenic are in pyrite, and then we can back out what it was in, in the causative solutions. So it's more giving us a better understanding of how these form. And then that can, in a broad context, can give us a better understanding of the processes, which can help us get like vectoring techniques. But the association with arsenic and even the, the argument, whether it's in lattice bound or whether it's in nano inclusions has been known for some time. So, the, but it's all been known empirically and what this did was um, give us important laboratory, like experimental partitioning coefficients to be able to understand sort of what those fossilized fluids are telling us, like what the pyrite trace element chemistry is telling us about the fluids. Right. Like in a first of its kind type of study. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, they, I mean, we have a few trace element studies, but they're usually working at pyrite rates. So there's some work has been done with copper and stuff like that, but this is pretty much the first experimental one that's looked at uh, partitioning coefficients as far as I understand. Can you shed some light on the difficulties of conducting these experiments and the kind of factors that need to be controlled to get the results that you rely on? Yeah, so there's lots of problems. For one thing, pyrite's a bit of a garbage can mineral. So you need to... Which means 
you can get lots of different trace elements in it. Okay. Now, what they've shown in this is that the amount of arsenic affects the amount of gold. But then the question arises, what happens if we add cobalt? What happens if we add nickel? What happens if we add a whole cocktail of other trace elements that must be in these settings? Is that also going to change these things a lot? So like, you know, say if we had a lot of cobalt present, is that going to keep the gold from going in or something like that? It also is tricky because it's can be hard to kind of grow pyrite at a reasonable rate and also be alive when the study's over. Like you, you need it to grow fast enough, but it also still has to sort of relate to something geological. So whenever we're doing these experiments, we're having to make a lot of assumptions um, and generally geological processes, you know, gold de deposition might happen fairly fast. It, this might work fine, but a lot of geological processes when we're doing these sorts of tests can take a million years. So how reasonable in our lifetimes can we produce something like this? Um, so that's part of it too, like the time scale, what's the time scale that these occurred on? And also we don't know how much fluid went through. So they use fairly high gold contents in the solution, but if you were able to pump through, you know, millions of gallons of water through the rock, maybe you don't need that much gold. So did we actually way overshoot how much we, our starting materials should be? And they tried to get it at fluid inclusions, but fluid inclusions are really tricky in parallel systems because there's not the extensive quartz veining that we get. And whenever you're trying to analyze gold in a fluid inclusion, it's really analytically difficult because it's at such low concentrations. And they, they do speak to that in the paper as well. So I think that in your answer, you briefly mentioned the challenges that are associated with laboratory work in the earth sciences. And I was just wondering in your own experimental history, what challenges have you faced? Like the ones you mentioned or, or perhaps other ones? So I haven't done that much experimental work like this. Partially because it is difficult to get at the question you're going to, you want to answer. Like you, when you start designing these things, you end up just getting it really complicated, really fast. <laughs> and more of my work has been analysis of actual rocks rather than doing the background work. So the, and yeah, like this is the first study. So I have a collaborator who we're going to work on some lower temperature trace element things uh, in Michigan. And that will we'll be basically making a series of cocktails of probably three, three or four trace elements and just varying those inputs um, and see how each of them affect one another and, and the partitioning coefficients. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I can imagine you're trying to simulate what nature has been doing over millions of years. So with that time scale, I can imagine it being incredibly difficult to recreate. Yeah. So we had Professor Berquist on previously and she tracks the mercury contaminants that are a result of trying to process and re refine the gold. Can you, can you give some, some background on, on these techniques and, and kind of maybe compare their efficacy of it and their relative safety? Yeah. So I'm less familiar with mercury stuff. So I think that's mostly artisanal miners that she's working with and they, I think use it to help, separate the gold out of the other heavies. And yeah, I mean, mercury is a well-known carcinogen. There's lots of problems with that. With respect to like carlin system deposits, you have to pile up all that pyrite and 
they use some biological processes or just some some general leaching. So you have to break down the pyrite to get the gold out. So arsenic has also been known by humanity to be pretty unhealthy for quite some time. So you do have to process and do something with that arsenic, well, it be, whether it be left in an anoxic setting uh, as tailings, or I'm not exactly sure uh, what, what they do with, with their material, but it does produce a lot of acid that has to be dealt with. I mean, we have lots of industrial processes that use sulfuric acid. So that some of that can be sold and, you know, used for something useful, but yeah, it causes large amounts of local impact and you have to kind of balance potential risks of release of those tailings into, into waterways and stuff like that. Does the type of gold deposit determine what type of extraction method you use? Uh, yes. So, and you'll usually use a variable number of methods as well as like the type of mining method you use. So maybe we'll talk about mining method first. So there's two main ways that we mine gold. One would be underground where you do either uh, drifts or adits and mine the gold from tunnels. Um, so this is for higher grade, lower tonnage targets. And because the grade is high enough, you can use this more expensive technique. And if usually it's a lower tonnage as well. So you tunnel down and, and get out the oil. This is, has less impact because most everything is underground and it can be backfilled with a lot of the rock that you took out. So you take the rock out, you take out the gold and put it back is sort of the model of an underground mine. Now there's problems in that, like the blasting of the mining effect can cause interaction with the groundwater, but a lot of times you're actually deep enough that you're in the bedrock. So it's not gonna affect the water table that people use that much. Now, open pit mining is for larger tonnage, lower grade deposits. Like it sounds, you dig a giant pit and you pull out the material that's close to surface. This has comparatively higher impact because often you can backfill a bit, but you're pulling out a lot more rock. And usually there's a fair amount of sulfides in a lot of that rock. And sulfides are one of the, what, the things that are kind of more dangerous in terms of environmental effects. So if you oxidize it, it produces sulfuric acid. And usually a lot of these minerals have a lot of other uh, trace elements in it. So it's a bigger engineering feat to design ways to sequester that material and have it not interact with, with the biosphere. Now, the ways that you extract it also, there's two different ways. Either if it's as free gold, you can get a a lot of it on what they call a grab circuit. So you just use the density of the gold to pull out the metal. And that's uh, that's good for a couple of ways. It's cheaper to process that way. And it also, it, it doesn't require the destruction of those sulfides. So then you can put those sulfide minerals into what they call a tailings pond. You can pour water on top of it and this keeps it anoxic. So the sulfides don't actually decompose. Whereas you, the other one is you break the bonds in, in the sulfides to release the gold. So those are uh, heap leaches. And that's where you kind of like pour water and a bunch of other stuff onto, onto big piles of concentrated pyrite. It breaks down the pyrite and you collect the solution that kind of drains off and you pull the gold out of that. And that, you know, produces a lot more acid. So I, I'm glad that you've detailed the, the 
process of gold mining and, and gold prospecting, but I wonder if you are aware of any major misconceptions that most people have about these processes and gold mining. Something that's not really in the mainstream media in terms of when people talk about gold mining as an industry, something that people don't expect and they're either absolutely shocked or maybe even pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think it's um, it depends on who you ask partially because some people are going to be more pro-mining and other people are going to be more anti-mining. And a lot of that often has to do um, with historically what's happened where they grew up. So where I grew up, mining was a dirty word um, because there was a copper mine that opened for about a one year and it wiped out the salmon run in one of the main rivers um, from British Columbia. And that it's taken like 50 years for any salmon to go near that again. It's copper is really sensitive to salmon, at least, uh, at least the Pacific salmon. So if you add much copper to the river system, it's really toxic for the fish and it can, it can wipe them out fast. So if you have that sort of a negative kind of upbringing or in your area, you're more likely to be anti-mining. Whereas I think people don't understand how good the companies are, are at doing this in a lot of cases. I'm not going to say that for all companies, but there's been a huge investment in engineering and to understand these the processes to better design tailings, ponds, and stuff like that. Now, you hear stories of aging infrastructure failing a lot there. I think it was um, Valet had a couple of bad ones in Brazil not too long ago of tailings dams collapses. Mm -hmm. So there's still lots of examples where it hasn't been done right. And I think that's really what people think of a lot of the time when they hear gold mining and stuff like that. There's also a lot of, I think, success stories uh, as well. And then there's a lot of gray area in between. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I think people also should realize that this is something we should be thinking about and talking about when we're electing officials and stuff like that, that are going to be making the laws that an energetic resource section is good for the economy, but also you shouldn't just turn the other cheek and expect things to be done properly. It, it, it takes an investment in people understanding what's going on and checking to make things, things that are done right and having buy-in to it. I think it's, it's also important for people to understand the importance of gold in our societies. And it's not just the the more recent physical technological properties that it has, but it's historically held a lot of cultural significance. And I remember you saying in class one time that it has a lot of staying power in our society because it, it's central in a lot of, of cultures and cultural rituals. In the West, we think of gold being in like wedding ceremonies and religious artifacts Donald Trump has a toilet made out of gold or something. <laughs> so we've heard. But this also extends to practices in China and India. And as the people in these cultures gain more capital, they'll increasingly be spending that on gold. Yeah, with uh, I have some personal experience with like Chinese wedding practices. And that's what it, you have a tea ceremony and then people give gold bracelets. It's one of the traditional things. Um, and also in India, the wedding ceremonies, you know, if you have the money anyway, involve an awful lot of gold been given away. And this is partially because like traditionally, this is an example of portable wealth, which is something that now we can do a lot more easily. But for, you know, the several millennia prior to 
um, what we have now, it was basically the only portable wealth there was. It wasn't that easy to take your herd of, you know, a hundred cattle and make a, a, a big presentation of that or something like that when you could have a handful of gold instead or your, you know, tracts of land. That's not something that's easily transferable, whereas a handful of gold is. Yeah, very true. Uh, okay, I think we've got two more questions for you. First, um, I would like to know if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, or if you could have the, the answers to some sort of mystery in earth sciences or whatever field, Bridget went political sciences, uh, what would it be? All right. Well, Bridget went political sciences. I'm going to way under pitch this, but I'm going to take it back to the paper. Now, they talk about gold being lattice bound. We don't really know that, though. We know as far as we can see with an SEM, but I guess the part of the question is like, how many atoms is a nano inclusion? So with some of the more advanced techniques we have available now, like atom probe tomography, we can actually get at whether that gold is really bound within the structure or with whether it's really fine nano inclusions. And not only gold, but like all other trace elements in pyrite, I think will be really interesting to answer. And, and it's something we're on the cusp of as well. So is that something that you're working on right now? Yeah, um, it's like currently now Nicole Atienza. She's one of my master's students. And she's working on that modern pyrite modern sediments. And I've got a few other proposals that are going forward. And then as well as that sort of thing, by using synchrotron techniques like XFs and Zanes, we can get at the uh, redox state of the trace elements in it as well. So one of the things they mention uh, in the paper is arsenic being in the one minus state. But arsenic can also substitute into pyrite as the arsenic three plus state as well. So it can substitute for sulfur or it can substitute for iron. And what it's doing probably has a lot to do with what your um, partition coefficient is of the gold into the pyrite. So getting at that sort of angle of the question too is going to be important for understanding how the gold is being upgraded into the pyrite. Well, that's really cool. So this is a scientific mystery that you can potentially solve yourself, not just wait for someone else to figure it out. And when you do, we'll have you back on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one more question for you, Dan. If you weren't an earth scientist, who would you be? Um, probably I would be crane operator. Really? So that's what my dad wanted me to be. He was a crane operator on a self-loading, uh, self-dunking log barge. So he always mm -hmm. wanted me to do that. <laughs> mm, cool. All right. Well, this has been great discussion. Thank you. Uh, Sophia, do you want to end it with a quote? Absolutely. Thank you, Dean. So this quote comes from Alfred Harker, who was a 19th century English petrologist. And he said, the laws of physics and chemistry must be the same in a crucible as in the larger laboratory of nature. So very true. I think that relates well to, to this episode and all the all the experiments that were done. That actually used to be a, a controversial statement back in like medieval times. I've learned a bit about the history of science and the idea that you can get information from experiments it used to be a real controversial statement. Well, one of the, I can't remember which one, but one of the fathers of geology thought that thin sections were a waste of time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why would I look down a microscope to try and understand how a mountain was built? Right. Interesting. And now look at what's happening. Students are 
getting paid to make thin sections for their laboratories. (laughs) And breaking half of them. Yeah. (laughs) I still haven't learned how to make one. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. This has been a great, uh, great discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. It was awesome. And we just want to say thank you to our listeners. We hope you tune in next week for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 